0: Well, praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Happy Mother's Day. It's good to see each of you here this morning. I'm glad that uh, you're here today. Uh, I, I have to admit, I, I will not be bringing to you a, a message concerning Mother's Day that we that will be saved for this evening. But what I hope to do is to continue in our exposition of the book of Revelation. So I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to uh, Revelation, the third chapter. Revelation, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the church at Smyrna this morning. And in this particular letter that our Lord Jesus Christ gives uh, to this church, uh, we will find a church in the midst of persecution, a church in the midst of suffering. We will find that the city that this church lived in is a city that in very many ways kind of parallels uh, the society that we live in. It was uh, something of an advanced uh, uh, culture. It was something of a, of a religious center. And we're going to see that in spite of all this, uh, this added to uh, the reality of the church's difficulty and persecution. And so by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, I hope to set this passage of Scripture before you. And I, and I, and I hope and I pray that we hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, that great exhortation to be faithful unto death We can kind of parallel what we're going to see this week with what we saw last week. You might remember we looked at the church church at Ephesus. And in that passage of scripture, in that letter, in that epistle, our Lord Jesus Christ exhorted the church at Ephesus to love Jesus Christ to the highest degree. Christ expects from you these deep Realities of love. Christ calls you to love him above all other loves and that's what we emphasized last week. Well this week what we're going to emphasize by way of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ is his call for you and I to be faithful to him to the highest degree. No matter what the obstacle, no matter what the difficulty, no matter what the threat, our Lord Jesus Christ is calling us to be faithful to him, as I said before, to the highest degree. So let's take our Bibles, let's go again to Revelation, the second chapter, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Once again, please hear the word of God. Revelation chapter 2. And unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them, which are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath been ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Well, in this passage of scripture, we have before us the shortest of all the seven letters that our Lord Jesus Christ writes to the churches. It's direct, it's to the point, And one of the outstanding features of this letter is the fact that this letter contains no word of condemnation. Everything by way of what this church is, is exemplary. Everything by way of what this church is, is a model for us in the day and age in which we live. And so what we have in this passage of scripture is our Lord Jesus Christ commending this church, consoling this church, and comforting this church even in the midst of its tribulation and its persecution. And what I want to do here today is I want to, as I said before, I want to press on you as a congregation as tenderly as I can, but yet as, as stridently as I can, this reality that you and I are called to faithfulness to Jesus Christ, no matter what the difficulty. And I hope and I pray that this faithfulness will kind of be, will, will kind of, uh, 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 be springing up within you by way of your love for Jesus Christ not so much by way of the pressure of an outward conformity that I might place on you or that some societal structure might place on you, but rather that from the depths of your heart out of love for Christ, you might find yourself standing faithful to Jesus Christ and over against a culture that would call you to be unfaithful to him. And so that's my hope and my prayer here today. <clears throat> and what I'd, do, what I'd like to do is to set the, the primary point of our sermon before you, and it's this. Christ calls his church to the highest degree of faithfulness, even in the face of the greatest persecution. Christ calls his church to the highest degree of faithfulness, even in the face of the greatest persecution. And we're going to see that this is what this church at Smyrna was dealing with. Not a call of Christ to be faithful is not a new call. As a matter of fact, we see it over and over again in Scripture. We can go back in the Gospel accounts and see our Lord Jesus Christ calling His followers to be faithful to Him in spite of whatever opposition they may face. In Mark chapter 13, verse 13, our Lord Jesus Christ says the following, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. What we're going to see is that this church in Smyrna, again, experienced, again, the hatred of the society in which it lived. This hatred was political, it was societal, it also came from their fellow Jews. And we're going to see, again, that there was much opposition for the cause of Christ. And what our Lord Jesus Christ is saying to the church at Smyrna is the same thing that he said to his initial followers. Again, he that is faithful unto the end shall be saved. Faithfulness is what Christ is always calling his church to in spite of great difficulty, in spite of great temptation to flee, Christ calls you, Christ calls me to be faithful. And one of the challenges that we will face in our day may not be the overt hostility of the culture, although I think it's very possible that we can soon face that. We may not face the kind of pressure that this co- that this congregation uh, was was facing, although it may be our lot indeed. But I would ask you the question, can you and can I, can we stay faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ? Not so much in the face of opposition, but we, can we stay faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ when, when there is no opposition, when there is no adversity coming our way, when things are relatively easy for the Christian church, can you and I maintain a faithful witness for the cause of Christ? When there is no outward pressure conforming us in the one thing or another, can you and I take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ? I hope that we can. But for this church in Smyrna, such was not the case. It was a church, again, that was experiencing uh, great pressure. Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ said to his followers also in John chapter 12, verse 25, He that loves his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Our Lord Jesus Christ is causing us to realize and understand that there is this evaluation that must be made. Shall I in this life, again, preserve my physical well-being or will I in this life live for the cause and for the glory of Christ and therefore be crowned with what our Lord says here to the church at Smyrna, a crown of life? You see, this call that Christ gives to the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter three is a call that he has been giving his, uh, his, uh, throughout his entire, entire, entire ministry uh, to his people. And then thirdly, we have again a, a very similar passage in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. And ye shall be hated of all men's, For my name's sake, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. Much like what we saw there in the passage of Mark chapter 13. Our Lord Jesus Christ is calling us to love him supremely. Our Lord Jesus Christ is calling us to be faithful to him even to the end, even at the greatest cost. And I hope and I pray that by the grace of God, I might show you this morning how our Lord Jesus Christ encourages this church to be faithful unto the end. And he'll do it in three ways. As we often break down these passages of scripture uh, by way of a three-point outline, the three points that I want you to see here today is this. Our our Lord Jesus Christ will encourage this church to be faithful unto him unto the end, number one, by presenting himself to the church in the fullness of his being. He will present himself to this church by way of being the first and the last. He will show to this church that is threatened with death and suffering. He will show to this church that he was the one who was dead but is now alive. In other words, he's the Lord of life. The beginning and the end. Before anything was, Jesus Christ is. When when everything will seem to be consummated, Jesus Christ will still be there. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ is this one who is truly God and truly man oh, this is a great blessing and a great benefit to the people of God, should they embrace this. The other thing that our Lord Jesus Christ will do in this passage of scripture is that he will make known to them the reality that he knows all about their suffering. He says, I know thy tribulation and poverty. And our Lord Jesus Christ is encouraging this church with this point in mind, that our Lord Jesus Christ knows whatever difficulty his people experience for his cause. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not aloof from the sufferings of his church. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not, uh, again, ignorant of of the price that is oftentimes paid to be faithful to Christ in a hostile society. And so our Lord Jesus Christ encourages this church at Smyrna, number one, with who he is, and number two, with what he knows. He knows their suffering. He knows your suffering. He knows your challenges when you attempt to be faithful to Christ in the day and age in which we live. And then the third thing we're going to see in this passage of Scripture is that our Lord Jesus Christ gives to this church a great promise of comfort, a great promise of reward. He that is faithful unto death... Again, shall not be hurt, shall be given the crown of life and shall not be hurt by the second death. Our Lord Jesus Christ in every one of these letters in the book of Revelation is is giving these great promises uh, to his people, calling them to be faithful and encouraging them and setting before them these these great and graceful promises. And so that's what we're going to take a look at here today. So along these lines, then, let me introduce you to the first point that we have here. Look again at Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, and see what we have in this passage of Scripture. Our Lord Jesus Christ says this, And unto the angel of the church at Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Here our Lord Jesus Christ comes to this church. Our Lord Jesus Christ, by way of this letter, presents himself to this church. And he presents himself to this church in a way that is very specific, in a way that he has identified himself in the past in the, in the book of Revelation. There is something of a sense in which we can say, our Lord takes to himself this title first and the last a number of times we've seen already in the book of Revelation. There in chapter 1, verse 8, there in chapter 1, verse 11, chapter 1, verse 17, our Lord Jesus Christ makes himself known as the first and the last. And what he's doing for this little church is he is saying to them, he truly is God manifest to them. This this title, the first and the last, it's used in the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah three times makes mention of the fact that Yahweh, God, reveals himself as the first and the last. And so when our Lord Jesus Christ takes this title to himself, he's doing that with the specific purpose of saying to this church that he is truly God on their behalf, truly God for them, as Jesus Christ comes to you and reveals himself as God for you. Again, the great passage in Isaiah, God with us, Emmanuel, God is for you, you see, in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ comes to this church in the midst of all their persecution and suffering and he reminds them that he is the first and the last. Before their persecutors ever thought of any persecution, there was Jesus Christ. After their persecutions are done, there will Jesus Christ be. And I'm saying to you, in the midst of all your trials, in the midst of all your evaluating as to who and what Christ is, Christ makes himself known as the first and the last. Jesus Christ, therefore, presents himself to this church as truly divine, truly God. But the second way he presents himself is truly man. And we see this in the second descriptive uh, uh, ter- terms that he gives. Look there again in verse 8. These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Now this is very specific and it's very important to this church at Smyrna. It's, it's, it's specific for this cause. When our Lord Jesus Christ says that he was, that he was, that he was dead and now, and is now alive, he's referring to the reality of his human nature. So that whatever he is, by way of his divine reality, by way of his divine nature, true God of true God, he, in the, in, in, in the course of human history and time, takes to himself a human nature. Why? That in that body he might pay your sin and my sin. That in that body he might suffer the penalty of sin. This, in a very real sense, is the, is the keystone of, of, all, of, all, of all the Christian faith. This idea that Jesus Christ, again, truly man, dying in the place of sinners. And so when he says to this church, again, I was he that was dead and now alive, he's reminding to this little church that our Lord Jesus Christ, yes, as exalted as he is, is also one who knows by way of personal experience the reality and the pains of death. But did you see what our Lord says? Not only was he this one who was dead, but he is one who is now alive. And this speaks to our Lord Jesus Christ in his great victory, his great conquering of death. In his death, he destroyed death. And what we find our Lord Jesus Christ saying to this little church is this, no matter what your persecutors might threaten you with, even with death, you must know that I am the first and the last. I am he which was dead and now alive. And I hold the keys, he says in another place in the book of Revelation. I hold the keys of death and life. And so of uh, death in Hades, and so our Lord Jesus Christ wants this little church to know He knows all about their sufferings by way of His own personal experience. And what this reminds us of is essentially this: our Lord Jesus Christ is uniquely fitted to be your Savior, to be your counselor. You remember the Old Testament scriptures refer to Him as the Wonderful Counselor. He is the one who is uniquely equipped to identify with you in all of your suffering. He is the one, again, whom God has sent in order that he might experience death on your behalf. Oh, you see, this Lamb of God that was set forth to take away the sins of the world, this Lamb of God, none like this Lamb, none like this Lamb, the first and the last, true God of true God, truly man, being, uh, being put to death and then rising again. And so the Lord Jesus Christ makes himself known to this little church. And what does he say? He says, everything that you might be experiencing by way of your suffering and by way of your tribulation, by way of your poverty, and by way of your being threatened to put in the prison, I know about these things. And I've experienced things in such a way that you must know that I can identify with you. And I want you to see what our Lord Jesus Christ is doing here. He's taking these descriptive terms for himself and he's, he's incorporating them, if I can say it that way, from what he, had, what he had earlier revealed in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, he gave that great description of who he is. And now to each particular church, according to their particular need, he sets forth some distinguishing characteristic of his being in order that that church might find comfort in the reality of who Christ is. And this is what Christ is able to do in your challenges, in your trials. In your victories, in your defeats, Christ is able to identify with you and he will identify with you. You remember what we said last week, how our Lord Jesus Christ holds the the seven angels in his hands. You remember what we said about that hand that he holds holds with? It's a nail-pierced hand. It's pierced for you. You understand? He took on humanity to suffer death in your place. Oh, the reality of the love of God over against the reality of the holiness of God all brought together in this one who is uniquely fit to be your savior. And that's what Jesus Christ wants this church to know. In spite of all the challenges that they are facing from a a hostile society, our Lord Jesus Christ says to them, I am the first and the last. I am he which was dead and is now alive. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The second death will not hurt you. You see our Lord Jesus Christ in the beginning of this letter, he is setting forth his credentials to give them confidence that whatever he promises, he indeed will be able to do. And that's why again we see in the, in the book of Romans concerning Abraham and his faith. Remember what the what Paul says in the book of Romans concerning Abraham? How that Abraham was fully persuaded that what whatever God, whatever God promised, he was also able to perform. Do you have that kind of a confident faith in your God? Do you have that kind of confidence? And if, and if I can say it this way, if not, why not? If this one, the one who was the first and the last, came and experienced death and is now alive on your behalf, why should we, tr- why should we, why should we mistrust or, or fail to trust God in any measure? And so that's what our Lord Jesus Christ is doing in this passage of Scripture. Now what's interesting is that there's a sense in which we can say if... if, if, if uh, if maybe we had the time or maybe the inclination we can use this passage of scripture to develop one of the, one of the really one of the building blocks of Christian theology. And that's the, the fact that Jesus Christ, again, in his person, uh, both human and divine, is, 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 uh, 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 is, uh, is the building block for the doctrine of the of hypostatic union. Uh, this idea that Jesus Christ in, one, in his one person is, uh, is both divine and human. And in that, you have the working out of the wisdom of God in salvation. Jesus Christ, truly human. Jesus Christ, truly divine. And in that, our salvation is secured. But what we see, again, again going on from this passage of Scripture is not only Christ's presentation of Himself uh, to uh, this church, the next thing that we see to the, uh, in this passage of Scripture is that our Lord Jesus Christ informs this church that He is fully aware of all of their suffering. He is fully aware of their experiences. And this is something, again, that our Lord Jesus Christ is not only aware of by way of this individual church at Smyrna some 2,000 years ago, he is very aware of your circumstances as well. Oh, and these circumstances of life they challenge us, don't they? Sometimes the circumstances in life bring us to the highest pitch of joy. Other times the circumstances of life bring us to the lowest points that we think that we can't get things can't get any worse. But I'm saying to you, for those of you who know Jesus Christ, this one who is the first and the last, this one who experienced death on your behalf and is now alive, I'm saying to you, this one is with you in all of you, in all every turn of life. And so he says to them, notice what he says here uh, in, uh, in chapter 2, uh, verse 9 I know thy works, thy tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. What I want you to see here is our Lord Jesus Christ, as I said before, specifically letting this church know he knows all about their trials, all about their persecutions. And this church did experience much by way of persecution. This church was located in a city that was somewhat of an interesting city in the ancient world, the city of Smyrna. It's kind of interesting. It's probably the only city that we read of in this Book of Revelation, uh, by way of chapters two and three, that is still in existence today. It's no, no longer known as Smyrna; it's now known as Izmir. And this uh, this city is something of a populous city back in its day when our Lord Jesus Christ was, was dictating this letter to the church. It was uh, known as one of the one of the primary places of Asia Minor. It was uh, referred to again as something of the of the flower of that area. Uh, It rivaled the city of Ephesus by way of its distinction. Uh, It had the privilege, we might say in quotes, it had the privilege of being a center of religious worship and also of kind of political uh, identity with the uh, with the uh, with uh, with fidelity to the Caesar. Uh, There was much, again, religiously that had uh, a lot of influence. There was much uh, by way of the political uh, 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 realities that were centered there in Smyrna. And the other thing that's interesting is that there was a very influential Jewish population in the city at that time. And these three influences, the Greek by way of its religious uh, activity the roman by way of its identity with the roman emperor and the jewish by way of its uh, by, by way of its significant jewish population all three of these things combined together to make it very difficult for the christians at smyrna by way of its by way of its political influence and its identity with rome uh, the the citizens at that time had to swear public allegiance uh, to the roman emperor now, this was usually done once a year by taking incense and burning it on an altar uh, in recognition of Caesar and an act, something of an act of worship. And of course, the Christians would not do this. Uh, the Christians would worship, uh, they would be obedient to civil government, but they would not worship a human emperor. That worship was reserved for Jesus Christ. And you can imagine how that would set that, how that would set them apart from the society at large particularly when the Roman authorities were, were very tolerant of religions in that day. And the only thing that Rome required is you would recognize the, uh, basically the, the superiority or the, or, or the fact of uh, having to give allegiance and worship uh, to, to Caesar. If you did that, almost every religion would be acceptable after that. By way of its Greek influence, there were, I think, at least six uh, temples dedicated to, to various Greek gods there in the city, and therefore, not only would it have been kind of a there would have would there have been this political pressure, but even societal, societally and culturally, it would have been very much influenced by Greek thought. And of course, the Christians would have been would would have been uh, distinct from that, and, they, and that would have been another way in which they were set out. And then, thirdly, as I said before, there was that very influential uh, Jewish element that was there in the city at that time. All these things combined together. Uh, To cause our Lord Jesus Christ to take note of the fact that they were a persecuted church. Did you notice here once again in verse 9? I know thy works and thy tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Verse 10: Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death. I want you to see the number of things that this church is confronted with. Number one, they are confronted with tribulation. And the word tribu- tribulation here is interesting. You may be familiar with this. The, the word tribulation has this idea of pressure. And the concept here is the, the pressure that sometimes is put on a church or on the individual who tries to live faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and the society that they live in. And there is society. There is the, the larger culture pressuring the individual into its own mold. Again, by way of either explicitly or by way of implicit pressure, either by way of explicit pressure or implicit pressure, drawing the Christian, again, away from his faithfulness to Christ and more in line with with the cultural mores. And so, again, our Lord Jesus Christ says, I'm aware of your persecution, this pressure. The second thing he says, I'm aware of your poverty. Now, this is very interesting. Because one of the things that would have taken place at the, uh, during uh, the time that this letter was written is that this church would have, would have suffered, the members of the church would have suffered economically because of its stand for Christ and against the culture. And so this church was experiencing this poverty. And the poverty that's being spoken of here is not the commendable, excuse me, is not the commendable spiritual poverty that our Lord Jesus Christ says is necessary but rather, it is that poverty that is forced upon the faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And why was this poverty something that they experienced? Because in that day, if you were not a part of the larger society, if you were standing over against the society, literally in that day, there was a certificate that was given to show your, your faithfulness to Caesar. You would not be a part of any of the guilds. You would not be a part, again, of, the, of, of, of accepted, accepted society. And because of that, many individuals in the church suffered economically. Their business ventures may have come to nothing. Their ability to stay employed may have been lost. And so this church was experiencing, again, this poverty because of, their, because of its faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, I know your poverty, but did you notice what he added there? By way of the parentheses, I know you're poverty, but you're rich. You see, whatever you may seem to lack by way of what this world gives you, in the sight of God, you are rich. And so again, it reminds us of what our Lord says, and many of us know this so well. What will will profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Oh, for that individual who knows the value of the soul. And so again, here is our Lord Jesus Christ identifying with this church, saying that he knows of these things. The third thing that that this church uh, experienced, again, in the King James, it says, the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews but are not. And this is kind of interesting because the blasphemy here isn't so much a formal blasphemy against God, although we might say that in one sense, whatever whatever slander was directed against this this particular church, it's also filtered up, we might say, to actual blasphemy against Jesus Christ. But the point that's being made here is this. Our Lord Jesus Christ is saying to this church, listen, I know and I understand what kind of reputation loss that you are experiencing. I know what people are saying about you. I know the things that they say about you that either aren't true or may be true but are being set in a certain way to, in, in order to diminish your standing in society. And our Lord Jesus Christ is again saying very clearly here that this is a form of the trial that this church was under, the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not. And then lastly, the the fourth thing that we see here is the threat of prison. And this threat of prison reminds us in a very interesting way that what this church was dealing with and what this church was suffering was not merely suffering on a human level, that there was something deeper than that, that this suffering that the church was going through was a suffering that really had at its roots spiritual opposition and true spiritual warfare. And the spiritual warfare that we see here isn't the kind of, what we might say, fantastic spiritual warfare that these things are happening and somebody is kind of just saying something and we don't know uh, these supernatural things are happening this was a very real, very tangible effect of spiritual warfare the, it was so tangible again, some were being put in prison some were suffering again that, that, that slander others were experiencing poverty but when our Lord Jesus Christ says speaking of the Jews that were opposing and slandering that they were of the synagogue of Satan we'll explain that in a minute and also that the devil shall cast some of them in the prison ten days, what we're seeing here, this is not just a human dynamic that we're looking at. It's much deeper than that. There is a spiritual reality. And so oftentimes, the church of Jesus Christ suffers in society, not so much because of the, the elements or the agents in society, although they may be the instrument, it's deeper than that, it's much deeper than that. You remember what the Apostle Paul says again, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and wickedness in high places. And that's what this church was experiencing. So these four things: persecution, poverty, slander, and prison. And it's interesting because when we take a look at the idea of persecution in its formal sense, not only in the sense of pressure, but now in its formal sense, that really would have been where we where we would see the impact of, of, of the Roman influence. Rome was dominant. And again, Rome, by way of whatever tolerance it would grant to those who would recognize the ultimate superiority of Caesar, whatever else there was, should Caesar be denied, the full force of Roman governmental authority would come against that group or that individual. And this was really how they were ending up in prison. So the Roman influence, we might say, was was the the chief antagonist in this uh, persecution But the Greek influence as well, we might say, had much to do with uh, by way of the impoverishing of this church. You see, these societal norms, that are not necessarily uh, codified by law, but are just those norms that society moves and lives by. Oh, go against those norms. We live in a day where that's not always uh, so much of a challenge for us, but this church in Smyrna, again, suffered very much because of that, because they would not go along with whatever the societal norms were. It's always been a challenge for the people of God in whatever age they live to stand apart from the culture in such a way that we, not, that, that we are not showing to ourselves unconcerned with the society, but neither are we going along with society in opposition to what Christ commands us to. And so again, this uh, this uh, this poverty was something that was very real. And because they were not a part of the larger accepted success, uh, society, they were not accepted, we might say, in, uh, in, in uh, in in, in the society. Because of that, there was this poverty. And then again, lastly, as I said before, the slander from the Jews. Now, this is very interesting because Rome, by way of its, you know, there was a tolerant element in Roman rule. And Rome, by way of its tolerance, allowed for the Jews and no one else to not have to swear allegiance, ultimate allegiance to Caesar. They had to be obedient, but Rome did not require the Jewish nation to to refer to Caesar as God. Caesar was worshipped as God. And what was happening was this. In the very early stages of the Christian church, the Christian church just was naturally assumed to be just another offshoot or another sect within, within the Jewish religion. And in the process of time, once the lines began to be hardened between the church or the gospel and those who were rejecting the gospel, those of a a Jewish background who were not seeing in the Old Testament scriptures the fulfillment of all the promises in the person of Jesus Christ, the Jews began to make known in no uncertain terms that those Christians are no part of us. And again, they would do that in such a way as to further ostracize the church and society. And this is the slander that our Lord Jesus Christ is talking about here. So all these things, again, work together to make it such that this church in Smyrna was a persecuted church. It reminds us of what we read of in the book of Hebrews, uh, how that there were those who were suffering for the cause of Christ. Their, their, Jew, their, uh, their Jewish brethren, their natural brothers by by way of uh, Jewish identity, were casting them off, and they were suffering because of it. They were experiencing poverty. They were being imprisoned, much like we see here in the book of in this uh, letter to the church of Smyrna. And what does Christ call this church to? He doesn't say, "Okay, look, just you know, fold up your tent and and get along with this." He doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, when he comes to counsel this church, it's amazing how he does it. He does it with a mixture of exhortation and comforting promise. He exhorts them to be faithful unto death. Don't flee these things, and, or, 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 or don't uh, uh, run uh, Let me say this, I, I want to say this carefully. Don't, uh, uh, don't, don't, do, don't do everything within your power to avoid these things. It's not, there's nothing wrong with fleeing persecution, but there's something wrong with fleeing from Christ. And so we could see that there's nothing wrong by way of the evaluation that a Christian might make to say, okay, listen, there's no need for me to stay in this place to be further persecuted. I can move on, but I can't leave Christ. And so what our Lord Jesus Christ is saying in this passage of Scripture, be faithful to me unto death. And though much by way of trial may come your way, be faithful unto death. And it's very interesting because when we, when we see and understand what this church was going through, we see that history records for us the the occasion of a very significant martyrdom uh, in Christian history. Uh, And around the year 160 A.D., a man by the name of Polycarp was uh, was martyred uh, at this time. And what's interesting is that Polycarp was from Smyrna. Uh, Polycarp was probably about 20 years of age when when this letter was given or uh, written by our Lord Jesus, or written uh, by, uh, by John through the dictation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Polycarp was a young man, and he would have heard this epistle. He would have heard this letter being read. And Polycarp, Polycarp was greatly influenced by it. And Polycarp, throughout all of his life, remained faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end of his days, about 60 years after he had first heard this letter, he was hunted down by the authorities. You see things that were happening at, at that time where there was, a, there was this ongoing uh, persecution and tribulation that was given to the, to the Christian church. And Polycarp, again, being a leader uh, at that time, Polycarp was hunted down. And for a while, Polycarp left Smyrna and eventually he was captured about 20 miles outside of Smyrna. He gave up the, any idea of trying to, uh, trying to leave or to escape He had a dream where his pillow was on fire, and in his mind, uh, that kind of convinced him that he must be burnt at the stake, one of the ways in which Christians were put to death at that time. And so Polycarp was arrested. Polycarp, this old man of over 80 years old, I think uh, 86 he was at the time, and you can imagine when his arresting officers came and they were seeking out this notorious uh, Polycarp, and they find some 80-year-old man and Polycarp, they arrest him, and, they, and along the way of bringing him to, to be executed, they, they are pleading with him. And Polycarp, Poly, do the incense. Just admit that Caesar is Lord, and, and none of these things will befall you. And Polycarp takes a, a memorable stance, a heroic stance. And many of you might know what Polycarp said. Polycarp there was being threatened. It's kind of interesting, because you read the account, and you have, you have kind of like classically what we call in our day, good cop, bad cop. On the one hand, Polycarp, come on, don't 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 be so hard-headed. Dude. Just give this stuff up. On the other hand, Polycarp, if you don't do this, I'll set the beast on you. I'll set the fire on you. And Polycarp is saying, "Look, he says you you're trying to threaten me with a with a temporal fire that in an hour shall be put out. When what awaits you is an eternal fire that shall never be extinguished." And so again, the the emperor the uh, the the magistrate is saying, to Polycarp, Polycarp, we can't." And Polycarp says these memorable words. He says, Eighty and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. He says, I will die for him. I will identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in my death. And so here is this man, Polycarp, experiencing the very things that our Lord Jesus Christ was laying out for this church. He was experiencing, again, this persecution. He was experiencing uh, this slander. He was experiencing this poverty. He was, again, he was in all these things, but this man was faithful unto death, and our Lord Jesus Christ gave to him that promise, the crown of life. We'll get to that here shortly, but I just want you to see and understand that this church was a persecuted church, and this brings us now to the comfort that Christ gives to this church. He comforts this church, and I have to admit he comforts this church in a way that is maybe unexpected because he doesn't say to this church, okay, look, let's, you know, let's, I'll make sure that I do everything to, to make sure that you don't, don't go through these trials. He doesn't say, I'll make sure that I do everything that you don't have anything to worry about. He doesn't do that. But rather what he does is he calls this church to faithfulness. Notice what we have here. Again, there in verses uh, 10 and 11, Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. But be thou faithful in the death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Him that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And what I find very interesting is this, is the way our Lord Jesus Christ comforts this church, <clears throat> counsels this church, I might say, is by way of a combination of exhortation and of comfort. And I want you to understand that it is no real, it is no real comfort to your soul when someone calls you to leave off the faithfulness to Christ. But rather, what Christ counsels here is, is faithfulness even in the midst of great trial. Did you see what he said here? Verse 10, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. He doesn't say that I'll get you out of the things. He says fear none of those things. And this is interesting because so oftentimes we see on the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ these words, fear not. He's reminding, this, he's, he's reminding His people, He's reminding His church that whatever they may have to go through for His cause, He is there with them. You remember the first and the last. He that was dead and is now alive, He's there. And therefore, fear not these things. And that's the first thing I want you to see. That what our Lord Jesus Christ calls us to is faithfulness in His cause. To go on and to be faithful to whatever He's called us to do. And so the first thing he does is he calls them, again, not to fear what man or even Satan can do to them. The second thing he says this is he reminds them of the fact that whatever this world may be able to do to us, whatever Satan may be able to do, it's temporary. He says here, the devil shall cast you into prison for 10 days. And the point here is that it's a temporary time. It's a short time. It's not something that's going to extend into it. Satan can't get his hands on you in eternity. And what he is saying here then essentially is this. No matter what the cost I'm saying to you, I oversee these things. I control these things. And that's exactly the point that's being made. Satan, yes, it is his work that we're seeing there, but he can only do that which God or Christ allows him to. It's only for 10 days. And so he's reminding his church here. He's calling them to faithfulness in this regard. Fear none of these things that thou shalt suffer Again, 10 days. But the other thing I want you to see is this, and this is important. We often lose sight of this. Our Lord Jesus Christ is reminding this little church that the very fact that they will be suffering this persecution, the very fact that they may be cast into prison, this is for a testing or for a trying of their faith. And that's something that's very important to every one of us. Your faith and my faith needs be and ought to be tested. Brothers and sisters, how have you how has it gone with you in these tests of faith? In those experiences of light and those experiences in life that rock us. Have you been again drawn closer to Christ in these trials or have you been shaken off from Christ in these trials? You see these trials prove the reality of who and what you are. And our Lord Jesus Christ is saying to this church, listen, these trials are for your testing and it's a good and beneficial thing for your soul for you to see your test, your faith your being tested and seeing it hold up. And if you think that you can't hold up, look to me and I will hold you up, Christ says, because I'm the first and the last. I'm he that was dead and is alive forevermore. And so Jesus Christ is saying to this church, yes, trials will come your way. Tribulation will come your way. Spiritual warfare will befall you. Oh, but look to me and I will uphold you. This is all for the testing of your faith. And what, what is more important in this life than to come to the end of our days knowing that Christ has been with us all the way and by his grace he has joined us to himself in such a way that neither the world, the flesh, or the devil is able to shake us off from him. Oh, you see, this testing of our faith is nothing to consider lightly and so our lord jesus christ again he comforts this church in one sense with these with these with these stern or these tough or these hard words he doesn't say he's going to remove the difficulty he says he's going to give them grace to sustain them in the in the difficulty but that's not all because not only does he give an exhortation in his counsel he does genuinely give comfort and the comfort here is seen uh, especially at the end of verse 10 and in the end of verse 11 Our Lord Jesus says this, be thou faithful unto death. Remember I said in the beginning of this sermon, our Lord last week called us to the highest degree of love. Here he calls us to the highest degree of faithfulness. Be thou faithful unto death. And what does he say? And I will give thee the crown of life. Notice what we have here, this crown of life. I want you to understand that Jesus Christ is the one who can give this crown of life. You see, Paul says in Romans chapter 14 that Jesus Christ was dead and raised again in order that he might be Lord of, of both the living and the dead. Our Lord Jesus Christ, again, is the Lord of life. He holds the key of death and Hades in his hands. I want you to see and understand that it's, it's, it's our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, who can give this crown of life. And that's what he promises. He promises, again, the blessing of eternal life. Yes, we thank God for this life. This life is precious to us, is it not? Everything by way it has, by way of its difficulties, is, is, is in so many other ways uh, kind of made up for by way of its blessings. We thank God for life. We love life. Oh, but there's this crown of life that our Lord Jesus Christ has given. There's this promise of eternal life. And it goes back again. What will it profit a man if he loses his soul? So our Lord Jesus Christ does make this great promise of the crown of life. And of course, if you have the crown of life, how can the second death hurt you? And that's what our Lord Jesus Christ makes by way of a promise. The second death will not hurt you. Oh, you see, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is dead and is now alive, the one who holds, again, the, uh, the, the churches, uh, the stars in his hands and, and walks among the candlesticks, this one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, this one who is Lord of Lords, uh, uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it is this one who speaks of this whole matter of the reality of a second death. What will this second death be? Oh, the second death as the first death is separation of the soul from the body the second death is the separation eternally of the soul from god oh the second death is that which is much to be feared the second death is that again which our lord jesus christ sets before us not because he wants to just unnecessarily scare us because he knows the reality of it and this one who tasted death this one who experienced death this one who destroyed death knows of the reality of the second death and so here we have this this little letter that our Lord Jesus Christ gives to this church, no word of condemnation. This church is suffering and our Lord Jesus Christ is ministering to this church. Yes, a stern word we might say, a call to be faith-weaving unto death, but there is our Lord Jesus Christ not only giving this stern word, but also giving these comforting words as well. A crown of life, not hurt by the second death. And so that's what our Lord says. And now as we come to the again to verse 11 here, we, we have this refrain that's given to every one of these epistles. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. I want you to know and understand something here. If it is indeed the fact that I have faithfully opened up the word of God to you today, I want you to know and understand that the Spirit of God is speaking to you right now. And the Spirit of God is saying to you, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. If indeed the word of God has been faithfully opened up and applied, I'm saying to you that it is the Spirit of God who speaks to your heart. It is Jesus Christ who is saying to you, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And I want you to see something here. While this letter was written to a church, while this letter was written to an historical church, this letter is also written by way of its purpose and intention for each and every individual hearer. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. I ask you a question this morning: Do you have an ear to hear what the Spirit says this morning? It is Christ who calls you from this hostile world to Himself. It is Christ who calls you again to be faithful, even though society might bring all kind of difficulty upon you. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ is calling for here. He that hath an ear, let him be faithful. Uh, uh, let him be faithful under death. Now, lastly, I just want to come to these points of how we deal with this passage of Scripture in our own day. And the first thing I want you to know and understand is this. I want you to see, I want you to realize that every situation, every circumstance in the life, every circumstance in life that you go through, our Lord Jesus Christ knows about it. And every situation and every circumstance you go through, He is there in the fullness of His person. He is there in the reality of His divine being. He is there in the, in the compassion of his, of his human nature. He knows everything by way of power, what is necessary to bring into your situation everything necessary to move you along in faithfulness. He knows what it is by way of your, of, your, maybe of your fear of death and of things in this life. He knows that by way of his own experience. And so understand that. Understand that every tribulation you go through, maybe not only these very difficult ones that we're seeing in the Church of Smyrna experience, but every tribulation, every trial you go through, Jesus Christ speaks to you as the one, again, who is the first and the last the one who was dead and is now alive. Oh, won't you, look, won't you look to him? Won't you embrace him? Won't you walk with him through this life as he walks with you? And so our Lord Jesus Christ, again, in this way. Well, one more point I want to make by way of application, and it's this. This church, again, had a tough go of it, we might say. There were the pressures of society. There was the poverty that it, that it, that it experienced. There was the slander that it suffered. There was a threat of imprisonment that many had to go through. And so this church was given a call by the Lord Jesus Christ to be faithful against that backdrop. And their backdrop is not necessarily our backdrop, is it? We're not gathered here under the threat of imprisonment. Hardly any of us, if any of us, have suffered economically because of our stand with Christ. How many times are we slandered? And if we're slandered sometimes, is it because of our faith or is it because of our foibles and mistakes and maybe quirks in our personalities? And the point that I'm trying to make to you is this. We're we're not threatened in the same way that the church at Smyrna was threatened. And Christ gave them this, this counsel, this exhortation, be faithful unto death. And this church was. I think it's significant that of the, uh, of the seven churches, this is the only church. There was even, recently I was listening to a sermon on this passage of scripture, and somebody, someone, I forget who, the, who it was that was preaching the sermon, uh, made mention of the fact that within recent history there have been martyrs in this ancient city of Smyrna. But there's a church there. There's a witness for Christ there. And so what I want to ask you is this. Smyrna was called to be faithful in a a society that was opposing them and oppressing them. Can you and I be faithful in a society where that oppression isn't? Where we have the option to willingly identify with Christ at very little cost to ourselves? Will we be faithful to Christ in that kind of a setting? Or will we kind of melt into the larger culture? As a pastor, that's my fear for, for us as a congregation that will just quietly and nicely melt in to the larger, uh, to the, to the larger uh, society and culture. Oh, but God, that God would give us this grace, that our Lord Jesus Christ would, would so stir within us this willingness to be identified with Christ no matter what the cost. The terms in our day are relatively easy. Will we fail on these terms? And you may be thinking that, well, You know, right now I have this to do and that to do and everything. But when it comes down to it, I'm going to do the right thing. Will we? Will we? If we can't stay faithful to Christ in this day of relative ease, how will we stay faithful to Christ in a day of hardship? Now, don't get me wrong. One of the things I I love about the work of grace in the heart Is that those individuals who you think would be the least able to stand boldly for Christ when the moment comes upon them, there they are. I've said it like this. It's it's an amazing thing. We see these little these little these little these little church mouses, so to speak, roaring like lions. And then these so-called lions in the church not saying a word. God is able, Christ is able to give us grace whether we find ourselves in a Smyrna or whether we find ourselves in the day that we live in. My brothers and sisters, heed the call of Christ. Let us be faithful in the death and let us look with great expectation for that crown of life that he has promised and for the enjoyment of that eternal life that he gives. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do pray that you would grant to us, Lord God, these things that have been promised to us We have no question, Lord Jesus, that you are able to do all that you've promised. So bring them to pass in our lives, we ask. We do pray, Lord God, Lord Jesus, that you would give to us of the very grace that you are calling this church of Smyrna to enact. And so help us to stand fast in our day, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.